The sermon text for this morning is Joshua chapter 2. As we continue our series through the book, uh, we already read the chapter for our first reading. And we saw in uh, previous weeks in Joshua chapter 1 how God repeated the promise to Israel that he would give his people the land, the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. God said to Joshua in the opening verses of this book, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. That was the promise. And now, in chapter 2, in our sermon text this morning, we read about how Israel began the conquest, the conquest that they undertook in faith, believing what God had promised them. And we see that in chapter 2, they began by sending out two men, into Jericho. Jericho was one of the leading cities in the land of Canaan. They sent two men into the land, into this city, to spy it out. Uh, and, you know, this wasn't a, a new tactic. It was actually the same tactic that Moses implemented in the book of Numbers. Uh, Moses, who uh, sent 12 spies in to survey the land in order to see how Israel should organized its, its attack. And we actually know in the book of Numbers that the first generation of, of Israel perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief, because of the fact that when those 12 spies returned, uh, 10 of them gave a bad report. It was a bad report because it was a report that doubted God's ability to give them the land. And this is why it's significant that now uh, Forty years later, Joshua implemented this same tactic as Moses, but we see that this time, instead of Israel doubting God's promise to give them the land, the spies instead returned in great faith. They returned saying to Joshua at the end of chapter 2, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now, what, what caused these uh, two spies that Joshua sent out to uh, now return with a good report? To return with such an encouraging tone. We see that it was because of who they met in Jericho, a fellow believer named Rahab. When they entered Jericho, we see that these spies have made their way to a local tavern where they knew the people of the city are gathered. Um, you might want to, might be helpful to think about something like a saloon in the Old West, as we see in movies. Um, this place that the spies went would have been a place where travelers could get a meal, maybe a room for the night. Um, and we see that in this place, in this a public meeting house, 
These two spies providentially met Rahab. Rahab, who was an unlikely convert. We note in our first point this morning, God's gracious election in verses 1 through 7. God's gracious election. Um, In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, she gives her testimony about how she went from uh, being a lesbian feminist and a tenured English professor at Syracuse University. She went from that to becoming the wife of a conservative Presbyterian pastor. And it's actually a wonderful book that I recommend because it's a first-hand account of how God brought her to repentance and faith. Even though, she says, she was a very unlikely convert to Christianity because of her uh, radical uh, liberal views. And this is why I, I use the term this morning, unlikely convert, to describe a Rahab. And, you know, there are four reasons why it's so surprising that Rahab was a believer among the people of Jericho. Now, first, Rahab was an unlikely convert because she was a Canaanite. She was a Canaanite. She was not a Jew. She had not traveled with Israel in the wilderness those 40 years. She had not seen God in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You know, we might say today of Rahab, she wasn't somebody that grew up in the church that was familiar with the ways of God. In fact, we see that uh, she grew up in one of the most violent and, and wicked societies in world history. And yet, we see that she believed in the one true God, the God of Israel. Second, uh, Rahab was an unlikely convert because she was a woman. She was a woman. She lived in a society and in a culture that was dominated by men. And as a result, she would have been overlooked in her culture. She would have been completely uh, passed by. And yet God chose to use Rahab to focus his sovereign love and his grace on her. And he did this in order to demonstrate that both men and women are honored citizens of his kingdom. In fact, we know that Rahab is the only other woman besides Sarah, Sarah who was the wife of Abraham. Rahab is the only other woman besides Sarah mentioned specifically in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, that wonderful chapter that goes through and explains those who believed in God's promise in the Old Covenant, even though they did not see that promise come fully, become fully fulfilled in their lifetimes. Rahab occupies a place of prominence among the other great heroes of the faith, heroes that we talk about like Abraham and Moses. Now, Rahab's uh, prominence is also markedly displayed in the fact that she's included in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. She's the only one of two women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. She was an unlikely convert because she was a Canaanite, because she was a woman, and 
also because, thirdly, she was a prostitute. And, you know, if this was baseball, we'd say three strikes, she's out, right? Uh, and I think it's important uh, to note here that, that Rahab um, and, and many women in poorer countries today probably did not want this profession. Right? You know, we don't, we don't know Rahab's situation. Right? We don't know if she was forced into this occupation by a local thug. We don't know if she had uh, other means of supporting her family, if this was the only avenue that she had in that society, in that time, in that culture. You know, we, I would say, we can't imagine the hardships that women like Rahab faced, both in ancient societies and in many places in the world today. And, you know, that's why I'm encouraged by uh, new forms of mission work mission work that is focused in impoverished nations, and it's mission work that's characterized by evangelism, but it also includes um, helping those who are stuck in poverty to move out of that situation. And the way that many missionaries are doing this is they establish agencies that, that provide uh, job training and development of skills so that uh, women who are converted to Christ are then trained in something and they're thereby enabled to leave their old lives and still provide for their families and th thereby they're not forced to uh, return back to their old pattern of life. We don't, we don't know Rahab's situation, but we do see that her life was marked by sexual sin. And this uh, leads us to the fourth, fourth reason that Rahab was an unlikely convert, is that she was a sinner, and this was evidenced by her profession and by her dishonesty. The fact that she was a sinner, as evidenced by her profession and by her dishonesty. You see that Rahab lied to the city authorities when she said that the men who were at her house were actually not at her house. Uh, she lied because, as we read in the text, text, she wanted to protect the spies from being captured. And she faced an ethical dilemma, we see, and she chose to lie. Now, uh, hundreds of pages have been written about whether or not it was right for Rahab to lie in this situation. And actually, this is an excellent topic to talk about today. Uh, during lunch bunch, but uh, I would encourage you if you disagree with one another, you know, don't start a food fight or something like that, because it can get pretty heated as you uh, start looking into the ethical dilemma that Rahab faced and that many Christians have faced over the centuries that are in similar positions such as Rahab, have been put in similar situations. But, you know, I want to point out that when we uh, read this passage in, in Joshua chapter 2, and as we uh, look at it again this morning, uh, we, we tend to focus on Rahab's lie rather than focusing on Rahab's faith. Um, you know, it's like, I would liken it to reading the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a wonderful book that reveals uh, God's sovereign work in, in drawing thousands of people to himself through Jonah's preaching. And it's a book that, that points us to Christ, to Christ who is in the belly of the earth for three days, 
And then he was raised. And you know, unfortunately though, when we think about the book of Jonah, we don't think about those things, right? So often, many of us focus on the fish. Or was it a whale? And we have discussions about, well, how big should the fish have been, must it have been in order to swallow Jonah? Did it hold Jonah in its mouth, or did Jonah go all the way down to its belly, right? We have trivial discussions like this, and we lose the main focus of the text. We see that when we come to Rahab, though, we need to focus on her faith and not haunt her lie. Because Rahab is included in the Hall of Faith, again, in Hebrews chapter 11. And as we read in James chapter 2, she's given as an example of faith. Because there's something that outshines her dishonesty. It's the very fact that she trusted in the Lord. In fact, when we uh, think about Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we see that none of the saints listed in that chapter were perfect. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're all mentioned in Hebrews 11 for their faith. But nothing is mentioned about their dishonesty about the fact that each one of them lied. The focus is on their faith in God. In fact, uh, nothing is mentioned about Noah's drunkenness or his incest or Samson's many faults. See, God does not need to, when we think about Rahab, he does not need to specifically tell us in the Bible that it was wrong for Rahab to lie because he makes it very clear in the ninth commandment and he tells us clearly in his word that we are always to speak the truth, always. Scripture does not say, you know, speak the truth, but if things get too dangerous, then it's all right to lie. We know that the three friends who were uh, thrown into the fiery furnace, they could have escaped being thrown into the fiery furnace if they had just lied to the king. And, and many Christians throughout church history and, and even today could have lied and could lie in order to escape persecution, to protect their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Friends, we live in a fallen world, a fallen world in which we are plagued by sin, uh, both within and without, but we must never, in this fallen world and in our fallen state, justify sinning, but we instead are called to seek God's forgiveness. John Calvin explains, he says, as to Rahab's falsehood, we must admit that though it was done for a good purpose, it was not free from fault. For those who believe it was a dutiful lie, do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. Therefore, although our purpose is to assist our fellow Christians to seek their safety, it can never be lawful to lie because that cannot be right, which is contrary to the nature of God. And God is truth. And Calvin continues and says, still the, the act of Rahab is not devoid of the praise of virtue, although it was not spotlessly pure. For it often happens that while the saints study to hold the right path, they deviate into circuitous, Courses. Loved ones, what we uh, learn from Rahab, we learn that the presence of weakness does not mean 
the absence of faith. The presence of weakness does not mean the absence of true faith. Uh, Many great men and women of faith had and have weaknesses. You and I, though we are new creations in Christ, still struggle against the old man of sin, as the Apostle Paul explains. The, The patterns of our old nature that often get the best of us. But those weaknesses, those faults, those failures do not annul our faith. But we know that as the Holy Spirit is working in us, we are led to daily repentance and to a desire for renewed obedience. We also learn from Rahab that we are all, each and every one of us, are unlikely converts. We're all unlikely converts. You know, we, we tend to put people in categories of badness when we think about conversion. It's as though it's more likely that, that God can convert a middle-class American than that he can convert a Canaanite prostitute or a, a drug peddler in the inner city or an Islamic terrorist. We tend to think in these categories uh, in our minds, and, and we put people in categories of either pretty good people, uh, not so good people, and really bad people. Right? And the unlikely converts are the really bad people. But friends, we're all really bad people. We're all unlikely converts. Apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus, the Bible says we're all born dead in trespasses and sins. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's not just talking about a group of really bad people. He's talking about all of us. And yet God has shown us mercy just like he did to Rahab. See, her inclusion into the people of God, it foreshadowed the great engrafting of Gentiles into the church. This engrafting that is now happening under Christ when all people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, we see are being brought into the church on a daily basis by faith in Christ. John Owen, who's a Puritan, he says that Rahab is a blessed example both of the sovereignty of God's grace and of its power, of its freedom and sovereignty in the calling and conversion of a person given up to the vilest of sins. Nobody, no sin, should lead us to despair when the cure of God's sovereign, almighty grace is engaged. We see secondly in our text, Rahab's confession of faith in verses 8 through 11. We see from her confession of faith that she believed that Israel's God, Yahweh, was the one true God. She said to the spies in verses 9 through 11, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you 
when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And then she professed her faith in verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Notice in her profession of faith that she recounted uh, what God did for Israel 40 years ago. What God did when he brought them out of Egypt by way of the Red Sea. You know, this is evidence of the fact that the news of what God did in freeing his people from Egypt and bringing judgment on the Egyptians, news of that had spread throughout the world. Throughout the world, it, it reached Jericho, and even Rahab had heard about what the one true God did for his people. And loved ones, this is exactly what God had planned in the redemption of his people out of Egypt. He purposely planned Israel's exodus from Egypt in a dramatic way in order that he might be glorified when people heard about how he delivered his people from the Red Sea crossing. We read about this in Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. This is 40 years beforehand, before Joshua 2, our text for this morning. Exodus 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, Ha-ha, they are wandering in the wilderness. The wilderness has shut them in. God says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And we read that Israel did so. You know, we see in these verses that when God delivered Israel from Egypt, he did it in a way that guaranteed that he would receive all the glory. In fact, from the standpoint of military strategy, the detour that, that God told the Israelites to take was, was crazy. Uh, they were already on their way to freedom. When we read in Exodus 14 that God ordered them to turn around, go back, and to camp between the desert and the Red Sea. God purposely put them between a rock and a hard place, we might say, in an impossible situation. You know, any military strategist would have recognized immediately that they were trapped. And this is exactly what God wanted Pharaoh to think. The whole thing was according to God's plan. God was leading the Egyptians to think that the Israelites had no idea what they were doing, and this enticed the Egyptians to, to press what seemed to be their strategic advantage against Israel. But we see that once Pharaoh attacked, his army was destroyed and God closed the waters of the Red Sea. Loved ones, think about it. By, by putting his people between the desert and the sea, God showed the Israelites. He showed 
the Egyptians. He showed the world that he was Lord and that the glory of the victory belonged to him alone. By the time the Egyptians realized their, their foolishness, we see that it was too late. Exodus chapter 14, verses 23 through 25, we read that the Egyptians pursued and went in after the people of Israel into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, listen to the confession of the Egyptians who are in the midst of judgment. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against us. Loved ones, this was the basis of Rahab's faith 40 years later. See, she heard about the mighty acts of God, and she believed in God. She placed her faith in him. You know, if you had met Rahab on that day, and you would have asked her a lot of theological questions about justification and sanctification and about the Trinity and the two natures of Christ, she would not have done very well in answering your questions. But we see, loved ones, that her confession, though it was basic, it was genuine, it was true. She had true faith. And it was granted to her by the working of the Holy Spirit in her heart. We see as she clung to the truth, the truth that she had heard about the one true God. And we see that this truth then led her uh, not to remain cowering in fear about this God who brought judgment according to his might and power, but instead she cast herself on his mercy. She cast herself on the mercy of God, which we see in verses 12 through 13 of Joshua chapter 2. She said to the spies, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Dale Ralph Davis explains, he says, here is the evidence of true saving faith. A genuine faith. This kind of faith uh, never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God, but it presses on to take refuge in God. It's not just mental knowledge, head knowledge, but it's knowledge that is worked out into the heart and then into the action of believing. Rahab, we see, uh, not only must know the clear truth about God, but also must escape the coming wrath of God. It isn't just a matter of correct belief, but of desperate need. Now, saving faith is always like this. It never stops with brooding over the nature or activity of God, but always runs to take refuge under his wing. Amazingly, Rahab not only trembled before the terror of the Lord, but also sensed that there might be mercy in this fearful God. What but the touch of 
Yahweh's hand could have created such faith in the heart of this pagan harlot. That same spirit, loved ones, the same spirit that granted faith to Rahab is the same spirit who has granted us faith, not just to tremble in God's presence, but to also seek refuge under the blood of Christ. Thirdly, we see in our text the sign and seal of salvation that Rahab was given. Notice in Joshua chapter 2 that Rahab's rescue uh, didn't happen on that night. Uh, She didn't leave with the spies. But instead, the spies made her a promise. We read in our text, they said to her, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then, verse 18, behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head. And then verse 21, Rahab said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now that scarlet cord served as a reminder. It was a sign and seal for Rahab that she and her family would be spared on the day that God was going to bring judgment upon Jericho. We see that she didn't uh, put her faith in the scarlet cord, but she put her faith in what it represented. It was a reminder to her of the promise that the spies had made. You can imagine the fear and danger that that she might have felt. We read at the end of chapter 2 that when the spies returned to Joshua, they said, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Have you ever melted in fear? This is what the people of Jericho felt, the danger that was coming upon them. There was fear in all the land because of what God was doing through Israel. And so, day after day, Rahab was tempted to fear and to doubt that she and her family would be spared until she looked in her window and saw the scarlet cord. And that cord was a reminder to her the promise that her family would be spared from judgment. That scarlet cord for Rahab and her family was similar to the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood that Israel placed on the doorposts and on the lintels of their homes on the night of God's judgment upon Egypt. You know that the only houses that were saved from uh, the destructive judgment of God upon the firstborn in the land were those houses which had the sign of the blood. God told Israel in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, God gave Israel a visible sign and seal of their salvation. 
And, and he did the same for Rahab and her family. But loved ones, he, he does the same for us, doesn't he? he? He has given us tangible signs and seals of our salvation. These are tangible things that engage all of our senses, things that we can touch and, and taste and smell and see and, and hear. He has given us the preaching of the word to, to constantly remind us of his grace toward us and that we will be spared the judgment and the wrath that is to come. He has, he has given us the waters of baptism to show us that we are washed in Christ's blood, and that we have been given the Holy Spirit. He has also granted us and given to us the Lord's Supper, the supper that is a meal that reminds us that we commune with Christ by his Holy Spirit. See, all of these are signs and seals of grace. They're all meant to assure us that we will be spared the judgment to come because we trust in the one who bore the judgment on our behalf in our place. Loved ones, we know that God was faithful to Rahab. She lived on the walls of Jericho, as we read in chapter 2. Those walls crumbled. But her household, her home, was spared. God showed himself faithful in sparing her and her family from judgment. We read ahead about what happened to Rahab in Joshua chapter 6, that as the city of Jericho was under siege, Joshua sent the two spies to protect Rahab from the judgment that was approaching. Joshua 6, verse 23. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And then verse 25, Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua had sent to spy out Jericho. Loved ones, this is the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray.